coming up. I want the world to know. Got to let it show. I'm coming up. I want the world to know. Got to let it show. As the only exclusively queer show broadcast on KPFK, I Am Are You has presented an LGBT day at the station since the 70s. The last one in 2018 even included a historic live performance from the trans chorus. But this year the producer's role has been handed over to a more mainstream straight-focused show. But no worries, while we're no longer involved in celebrating our story of pride via this one special day, we celebrate pride on our program every week. And that means for the next five weeks we'll be looking at where we've been to get a handle on where we're going. In the words of Margot Channing, Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Coming up next, IMRU presents Pride Out Loud, Episode 2, Hope After a Storm. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. I'm Steve Pride. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Scooter J. Stevens. And so it begins. The statement that the Gay Day Parade is no more. No more will we be harassed. No more will we be staying in our closet. The people from all over the state and all over the country, for them to see 100, 200, 300, 400,000 gay people and friends marching through the downtown area, this is our city too. They will go back to Des Moines, Iowa, to Richmond, Minnesota, to Santa Cruz. They will go back and say, my God, 300,000 gay people and their friends marching. You know, I almost think I saw my son there. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for IMRU. I'm, and I'm gay. Yeah. And so am I. And we're up in San Francisco in uh, Harvey's office at Castro Camera. And Harvey's graciously taken a few minutes out of his very busy schedule <laughs> to talk to us about politics in San Francisco and how he got elected, the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in California history. I like to also talk about the politics in California rather than San Francisco. That's fine. Uh, because I don't think there's a delineation. There's you don't a, think that there's a difference in, in politics in San Francisco as opposed to, let's say, politics in Los Angeles? It's a matter of degree. There's no moat built around the city of San Francisco that separates us from the rest. Sometimes we wish there were. <laughs> but I think what takes place in San Francisco, uh, for whatever reasons, can take place any place. It's just a matter of understanding what it's all about. And San Francisco, it's very interesting because of the fact that I'm gay, that becomes the big media event that sells the newspapers. But it's very important that uh, we realize that I was elected as a candidate who was gay rather than a gay candidate. Did not run on a gay issue. Uh, in San Francisco, the difference from LA is that uh, we are both county supervisors and city council people, one and the same. Uh, the city is divided into 11 districts. And uh, since we are city and county, it's one powerful, very powerful legislative group. You have to picture if your LA city council and your LA board of supervisors were one and the same, that's what we are. Uh, and we are an activist group rather than puppets of uh, the strong mayor or something like that. In the 11 districts that were up for election this past year, there were a total of something like 162 candidates altogether. Of the 162 candidates, uh, all the, there were 11, uh, not even 11, there were about seven or eight who were incumbents who ran. Uh, six, I guess. Xing those out because they have a record of voting on issues. Of all the other 150 some odd people, I was probably the most issue-oriented person running probably had taken more strong definitive stands, not yes, I'm for that, no, I'm not for that, but why, and, and been in the battles, than all the other candidates uh, running. Probably more issue-oriented than some of the supervisors who ran for re-election. And it's vital to know that it took five years, or whatever it was, 
to build up that kind of a reputation. Being yes, because you had you had run for office in the past. It had nothing to do with running for office. The reason I ran for office is because I was issue-oriented. Mm. You know, people say, oh, you ran for office, name recognition. No. In, in my particular district, we've had about five or six major district battles versus citywide problems. In every one, I was involved in them, on one side or the other. There wasn't one other candidate, there were 17 people running in this district, there wasn't one other candidate who had been involved in every single district problem. I was there. People on the streets would say to me, Harvey, I don't agree with your issue, but I know you're a fighter, I know you're there, I know you will be there when we need you. They couldn't say that about any of the other candidates in this district or hardly in any other district. It sounds like Harvey Milk is uh, trying to send a message out right. to other gay or non-gay people who want to run for public office. Get involved. Build your base. Build your support. You can't just get out there and say, hey, I'm a nice guy and I'm going to vote right on all the issues. Uh, a lot of candidates I ran against would vote the same as I do, but they wouldn't be the activist. They wouldn't be the advocate. They wouldn't be the, the leader. And I think that's what we're crying out for, up even to the federal government. Okay, you know? we, statewide, let's get together statewide. May 5th, I think it's May 5th or May 6th, Sunday. May 6th, I guess it is. Sunday, L.A., we're calling um, together a statewide caucus of gay people. And we're inviting all the candidates for statewide office. Uh, governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, and I guess uh, Secretary of State. It's nonpartisan? Nonpartisan. Democrat, Republican. Peace and Freedom, American Independent. We want gay people from all over the state to come. We're going to say that you have 10, 15 minutes to present your case and then questioning. And we don't want to hear about dams. We don't want to hear about redwood trees. We want to hear about what you think on the gay issues. What you think about that. And then we will accept questions from the audience, filter them through a panel of gay newspaper people so that someone doesn't get up and do a 10 minute tirade. And I say, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> like I do. Um, and they'll be asked questions. If Jerry Brown does not show up, that will be published. If he shows up, what he says will be published. There'll be no endorsements, but we will disseminate the information. It's a forum, basically. It's a forum. It's like the black community does. We must follow what the black community does. Black community does this on a national level. All the candidates for the Democratic primary for president met before the black leadership forum, or whatever it was called, in North Carolina, and talked about black issues. We must do the same thing in the gay community. We must move out of San Francisco, out of L.A., we must move to California. If you add the gay community with the other traditional minorities, we should have control of the state. But we cannot sit in the back of the bus and let the other minorities lead. We should show the leadership. In fact, we are in, a, in an incredible position. You see, well, let me ask you, are, are other minorities <clears throat> coming around to realizing that they can and should work with the gay oh, community? Oh, yeah. Lieutenant Governor Dimley has stuck his neck out for the gay community over and over again. When Willie Brown's sexual bill was before the thing, mm. he flew in from Denver to cast that vote mm -hmm. in front of the eyes of the world. Uh, so he stuck his neck out there, and he understands working together, and he understands the importance of gay people in there. But it's very interesting. Take San Francisco, which is a very heavy minority city. Over 50% of the population is minority. Because of the fighting for those crumbs, uh, Sometimes the black community doesn't talk to the Chicano community, the Filipino won't talk to the Asians, the Asians won't talk to anybody, you know. That. Nevertheless, they all talk to me, the gay person. Partly for two reasons. One, because within the gay community, we have gay Asians, gay blacks, gay, you know, we are infiltrated. That's part of the reason we cut across the line. Second of all, for whatever reasons, I'm, I'm the, the one that can pull it together. So we are trying very strongly to pull together that coalition. In view of that, we realized, uh, at least I have always realized, uh, is the voter registration. We are kicking off a massive voter registration drive with the Chinese and gay community together soon. Hmm. You know, there's many, many reasons for that. 
working very tight with the Asian community, very tight. And if we can pull it off here, and if LA pulls it off, if we pull it off statewide, within 10 years, the minorities will be running the state. And when the minorities, I'm talking about the feminists, I'm talking about the gays included in that. And so we have to fight that, we have to fight with our natural allies. But it can't be just because a person is black or green or gay or orange or whatever it may be. They have to be issue-oriented. Cannot accept somebody to get up there, I'm gay, therefore vote for me. How do you motivate people to, to register? Because this is a fundamental problem that we've always had. Motivate them, say, do you like Ed Davis? Do you like Senator Briggs? Do you like Anita Bryan? You motivate them because it's, uh, you tell them that the legislators and the executive officers, be they the local supervisor, be they the statewide, run your life. They run your life and they spend your money. And when they collect tax money from gay people and don't give us anything back in return, take it for their golf courses, take our tax money for their pet projects, and give us, and on top of it, insult us by not giving us our rights. That's, that's not motivation. If you like being harassed by the police, if you like being uh, a third-class citizen, if you like being beat up by pugs, if you like the church yelling at you, don't register, don't vote, but don't complain. If you want to shove, be shoved back in your closet, if you want to be the traditional gay person who gets beat up and whimpers home and say, well, I'm gay and I deserve to get beat up, fine. Otherwise, the only thing you can do is register to vote. Another reason that some people don't register or don't want to get involved in what they will call, quote, establishment politics is that they're just anti-establishment politics, period. You know, that the way to change the system is revolution, blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What can you say to these people who don't want to get involved, who don't want to register, who feel like voting and the whole establishment political process is a waste of time and not the way to do it? Okay, the establishment political process stinks. I, too, would prefer to throw a bomb, except the establishment has more bombs than I have. So the option is something that I told, uh, oh, about four years ago. Three of gay socialists came in, who I know, and we had a nice long talk, and they talked about how bad the system was, and that the system has to be overthrown. Then we got talking about police brutality and harassment. And I said, after a while, what if you, you, and you were the three police commissioners? And I was the chief of police, and they said, great. I said, I thought the system stinks. It's not the system that stinks, it's the people who are running the system stinks. If everybody out there who thought the establishment and the system was rotten were running it, if the most radical liberal person, revolutionary person was the mayor of L.A., and the next one was the chief of police, and the next group of the city council, and the next group of the board of supervisors, they would be able to change the system. You have two ways of changing the system. Revolution, or getting in and bending it from within. Unfortunately, revolution will not work. I mean, it ain't gonna happen. As long as there's two cars in every garage and a drop of gasoline and a TV set and you can wash your, your glasses and not get spots on it, the revolution is not gonna exist because people are afraid of the unknown. And so they rather have the awful conditions that exist rather than the unknown. The revolution will not be televised. But rapid evolution can take place already on the board of San Francisco supervisors in six weeks. Things that were never discussed before have been discussed. The dialogue has been opened, which was never there before. And we won a lot of the votes. The very first major battle, it doesn't sound like a major battle, but it is a major battle, was the location of a Latino drug rehabilitation center in a white neighborhood. And the conservatives just won at it. And I battled them. I really battled them on it. And we won. We won the vote. A, that dialogue would never have taken under the old board. 
seven weeks ago, that would never even come up for vote. And B, we want it. So what is revolution? You know, uh, what, uh, it's not what I like to see. But we are going to have a rapid evolution. We've already had it in San Francisco. Just stop and think. The day the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco was sworn in, the tradition is every supervisor gets up and says a few general words and introduces their family there. And the first words out of my mouth, and, and, and the national press was there, was, as you know, I am gay. That has never been spoken before in any legislative body in this country. And I said that there's a state law that says gay people cannot legally be married, but there is no state law or law any place in the universe that says two people cannot love each other. And I like to introduce my lover. And if that's not a revolution, <laughs> I don't know what is. Sure, it's not what we want. But, you know, we're battling thousands of years of prejudice and thousands of years of a system. It's got to change. It's not going to be easy. I can only do it if I have a lot of support out there. Can't have a lot of support out there if people are not aiding financially and registering and voting. And there's got to be a lot more Harvey Milks. There's just got to be. There's too many young kids in little towns in Minnesota. Monday, November 27th, The jury deliberated more than 36 hours over a six-day period before reaching the voluntary manslaughter verdict. 
Jury foreman George Mincer told the San Francisco Examiner that the panel never seriously considered convicting White of first-degree murder because the jury could find no evidence indicating premeditation. Each count of the voluntary manslaughter conviction carries a potential sentence of between four and eight years. But White, who was once a San Francisco police officer, could be released on probation in three years. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop now What's that sound? Everybody look what's going We better stop children What's that sound? We'll be back after this quick break. It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. She was born in Falmouth, Massachusetts in 1859, the daughter of a congregational pastor. Once grown, she graduated from Wellesley College and then taught there for many years as a professor of English literature. Her yearly salary was $400 with board and washing. She is remembered as the author of the words to America the Beautiful and popularizing Mrs. Santa Claus through her poem, Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride. Her intimate partnership with Catherine Komen lasted 25 years until Komen's death from breast cancer. She nicknamed Komen Joy of Life. She said, So much of me died with Catherine Komen that I'm sometimes not quite sure whether I'm alive or not. Who said that? It was Catherine Lee Bates, who was posthumously inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? I am, are you? I am, are you? On the evening of May 21st, 1979, you undoubtedly heard or saw news reports with the banner headline, 5,000 Homosexuals Riot in San Francisco, what one San Francisco newspaper called a night of fury. Not since the late 1960s has the United States seen such a violent expression of its people's anger and frustration as was seen Monday night in San Francisco. But on Monday night in San Francisco, the focus was different than that of the 60s. On Monday night, it was gay people, openly gay people, lashing out their frustrations at a society who by its very structure stands as an oppressor to gay people. Monday night, Fruit Punch was with the over 10,000 people protesting the Dan White decision as a direct attack on the dignity of gay people. How are you feeling about what's happening now? Uh, increasingly angry, increasingly scared, very deeply hurt. Lesbian feminist activist Sally Gerhardt. Very much ashamed of a system that I put a, not much faith in, but at least a little bit of faith in sometimes that, you know, a jury of 12 good people and true could come in with something so obvious as this uh, with a proper verdict. And I'm enraged that it hasn't happened. And what I think is happening all over this country is that we are getting more and more military-minded. There is a huge right-wing backlash. I think people are 
beginning to want to put people more into boxes. They can't stand any differences. And the reason that Dan White shot Harvey Milk and George Moscone as well was because they were both supporters of gay people, Harvey being gay and Moscone being a supporter of gay people. And our connection now, I think, is with a broad-based questioning of a system that would have us all put in boxes and would like to have us all be just one way, color-coded into the proper sex role and particularly have our men be in that masculine mindset, that masculine code that's going to make killers of them all. And it's the women who have been suffering the most from this all these years. Now it's becoming gay people who are suffering from that. I say that the whole nation is suffering from that. It's very scary, that verdict. Very scary. I think today is a a really terrible day for the gay people of San Francisco. Former aide to Supervisor Milk, Cleve Jones. And I'd like to see us move down to 18th Street and start it from there to get the people out of the bars and into the streets. So maybe we can start moving down. I'm from KPFA. You know what I would like radio. to You know, I like to say, I think those jurors ought to be tried. I think I have a lot of frustrations too. I can't find a job. If I went around there and shot up a couple of people just to do something like because I was angry at them, you think they'd let me out of there? I'd be in there till doomsday if I didn't meet the chair first. And you tell them, whoever they are, I hope they have nice, long, sleepless nights forever. Walking up Polk, arriving at Grove, right before we enter the Civic Center Plaza. He got away with murder! 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 The crowd has assembled. Candles are being lit, posters are held on high. The street, the steps of City Hall, the street in front of it, back to the reflecting fountain, is filled well over 5,000 people, I would estimate, at this moment. What do you think of what's going on right now, sir? I think they should burn down the whole place. City Hall doesn't represent us. The city government isn't representing us. Something has run amok. It's real sad when somebody who murders. A legalized assassination I don't like to see. Well, I'm just here because uh, I feel like I had to register my feelings some way. Although I'm not gay or anything, I just uh, he should have gotten so many more than five years. Police have arrived at City Hall, at the doors of City Hall. They've got riot squad gear on. The grating in front of City Hall continues to get torn down. There's pushing and shoving going on. The people who have provided the human chain, it has now broken loose. Cops are now bashing heads of the people, of indeed the people who had formed the human chain, who to protect City Hall are now getting bashed by police. 
the people, the people who had been protecting City Hall are now getting dragged away by police. The police are now moving out into the crowd, moving out into the crowd and just flailing about. Running back, the police have literally beaten the crowd. Gay people are carrying gay people away who have been hurt and hit. The police moved into a group of people who were sitting down and not moving and just clubbed away and they realized that obviously our nonviolent not moving was not going to work. Gay people proceeded to run and now pretty much there's a 15 foot distance between us and the line of, of police who are coming down. You can hear their voices and here they are. Can you comment again on why you people got hit on the steps who had been sitting there and not moving and indeed protecting people? I don't know why, ask them why. We were just trying to cool people with no plan, no strategy, no leadership, just whatever power of suggestion and persuasion we had. And everybody up there was just, had just sort of got the same idea and came up. And there was an agreement that the cops wouldn't affect uh, the people who were standing protecting There was an agreement between who? There was an agreement between the people who were organizing the line and the police, the police that we would not be uh, assaulted uh -huh. and we were standing we were holding the line we moved the line gradually further and further away from city hall and then there was a rush on the entire crowd aimed at all the people who were holding city hall from its assault there were injuries uh, there were clubbings and i'm injured Later that evening, the police entered the Castro in large numbers, causing the people to come out of the bars, screaming, get out of our neighborhood. Go home! Go home! Go home! What happened here tonight? Well, I was just down here at 1 o'clock uh, having a drink, uh, and I decided to go home, and I go out and I noticed uh, there half a dozen cops standing in the middle of the intersection out there and uh, all of a sudden there are you know, more cops everywhere and they start lining the streets uh, and a few people started throwing bottles at them uh, and then they just go crazy. Uh, they chase people back into the bar where we thought we were safe and uh, then they just come storming through here you know it's uh, it's like nazi stormtroopers were you in the were you in the bar when yes i was we were sitting at the same table honey come over here we were all sitting at the same table relaxed having a cocktail i just ordered around the police bashed through every one of these windows billy clubbing everybody through that small little back door in the rear saying get out go home queers this woman get off the comes streets. up to me and kicks me in the That's ribs telling me to get your ass out That's what a she big said. woman police they were okay. billy clubbing people all the way out through the back door, and there was no way all these people could get through that tiny back door. They before came in before, tipping tables over, crushing people, people on the floors, in. billy clubbing, no, trampling over people, came people in, saying, get the hell out. Get out. Once, once, they, once they came in, they there was no stopping them. I was, I was hit in the chest the by billy When club. they finally got us out Friends the back door, in the back, they the got into formation and marched, saying, go home, faggots, go home, faggots. They had cops up here from Hillsborough, from uh, all down the Southern Peninsula, you know. These police don't have to deal with this kind of action too often, so 
consequently, when they're confronted with gay people, they react from a, a, a gut level. You see, much more so than San Francisco police, who who have to deal with uh, with the faggots all the time. You see, this guy was was saying that this was an anti-faggot decision. I think it's just it's just the way the uh, American system of justice fucks up all the time. You know, we try to run innocent people into the ground, and guilty people get off scot-free. Tuesday, May twenty-second. KPFA reporters on the scene said that the police did not show restraint once they started clearing the city hall area. Many demonstrators and some reporters were clubbed by police. City hall sustained major damage and police from neighboring counties were called in. San Francisco Supervisor Carol Ruth Silver and about 150 other people, police, demonstrators and reporters were injured, either by rocks and bottles or by police brandishing billy clubs. And even while Feinstein was telling the press that events were winding down, police were provoking a confrontation in the predominantly gay Castro district. Several gay community activists told Pacifica today that last night's violence was inevitable. Many gays believe San Francisco police harassment has increased since the slaying of Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk, and some think that Mayor Feinstein has not given enough support to the gay community. The voluntary manslaughter verdict in the Dan White trial was the last straw. With the KPFA News staff, I'm Eileen Alfandieri for Pacifica. KPFA's Polly Dart. It wasn't only the harassment in bars that the demonstrators were protesting. For many, Dan White's verdict blatantly showed the injustice of the courts. Many felt that had Dan White been poor or black, that his treatment would have been much different. Ron Eam, a resident of the Castro, commented. It was the culmination of a lot of frustration around a lot of different issues. Class issues, the direct police confrontation issues, the this justice system, you know, it has failed to produce justice in this case. You know, it, it was just a lot of frustration and anger with no place to vent it. There was no constructive place to put this energy. I mean, people were left with nothing to do, just try to subdue their violence, and people couldn't do it any longer. They reached that point where they went over the edge and they reacted in violence. Ranim went on to explain what happened in the Castro last night at about 1 or 2 in the morning after the demonstration had subsided downtown. I was standing at the corner of 18th and Castro talking to people about the events of the day, and the police kept circling around and around and around and around until they finally provoked an incident. Once they had provoked the incident, they just called in. They came from everywhere. It was an army of them. And they started first marching up and down the street in, you know, kind of a military fashion. And then they just hit the sidewalks, and they were indiscriminately clubbing people. Then they took to the bars. The people in the bars, a lot of them, were the people who hadn't taken part in any of the demonstrations because they didn't feel a part of that movement up until now. And they, the police entered the bars. I mean, they were hollering, faggots, we're going to get you, you suckers, you better run, and started just clubbing people and destroying the, you know, breaking out windows, clubbing people. After that, they kept marching up and down the street, occasionally taking to the sidewalks, you know, with their billy clubs, and just clubbing anybody who happened to be around. We were standing in our doorway here at just past 19th and Castro, and as this line of police officers went by, they charged up all the way up our stairs and in, right to our front door 
forcing us into the house with a with a weapon. They, know, right they had now. guns. Yes, they had guns. Not all of them. You know, the majority of them had sticks, but there were officers with drawn rifles. People in the bars, a lot of them, were the people who hadn't taken part in any of the demonstrations because they didn't feel a part of that movement up until now. It is said, friendship consists not in the number of things friends can discuss, but in the number of things they need no longer mention. And Cleve Jones found such a friend in Harvey Milk when he first escaped to San Francisco and worked as an intern in Milk's office. He co-founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which has grown into one of the largest and most influential people with AIDS advocacy organizations and he conceived the NAMES Project AIDS Memorial Quilt as a celebration of the lives of people who have died of AIDS-related causes. But for Cleve Jones, his career as an activist began during the turbulent 1970s when he was befriended by pioneer gay rights leader Harvey Milk. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones. When did you know you were gay? I was aware of being different in a way that was related to gender and sexuality probably as early as second grade. I got picked on at a very early age, and it was called names that I didn't understand, and I didn't know what those names meant. I think I probably put it all together in my head when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. My father was a psychologist. So there were textbooks in the house. I remember one day, probably 13 maybe, where a kid at school called me a homo. And I just flat out said, I don't know what that means. Why are you calling me that? What does that mean? And he said, you're a homosexual. And I didn't want to say that I didn't know what that meant, so I went and looked it up. And then I said, oh, that's what it is. And then in 1971, I read in Life magazine, uh, the Year in Review issue of 1971 had a story about the gay liberation movement. And finding that article was one of the single most important things that happened to me in my life because it was my first understanding that there were other people like me. I'm 56 now, so I think that my generation of LGBT folk were probably the last generation who as we approached adolescence, many of us simply did not know that there was anybody else on the entire planet that felt the way we felt. So uh, it was a real epiphany for me to find out not only that other people like me existed, but that there was a movement and that it was a radical movement, part of the larger movement against war and racism that I had already embraced. The man who saved Woodstock Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Who would have thought a semi-closeted gay interior designer from New York City would step forward and save Woodstock? His name was Elliot Tiber. It was July of 1969, less than a month after the Stonewall Riots. Elliot heard that the Woodstock concert promoters had lost their permit to hold the show in Wallkill, New York. That wasn't far from Bethel, 
where Elliot spent his weekends helping his parents run a shabby hotel. As president of the Bethel Chamber of Commerce, Elliot was in the business of issuing permits. He offered to hold the show on his parents' property, but the Woodstock crew said it was too small. Then, Elliot got an idea. His local dairy farmer, Max Yasger, had a 600-acre farm, naturally shaped like an amphitheater. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Kelly Norse. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed, so pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU, on KPFK 90.7 FM. And at what point did you move to San Francisco? Well, I graduated from high school in 1972. I came up to San Francisco that summer, fell in love with the city, went back to Phoenix, enrolled at Arizona State. I had free tuition there because my mom and dad both taught there. We don't have money in the family, so I needed to take advantage of that if I could. But I couldn't focus on school, and uh, I gave it one semester, and then I hitchhiked back up to San Francisco in the spring of 73. It's hard enough to explain just being gay in the 70s. What was it like to be gay in the 70s in San Francisco? I came across the Bay Bridge one afternoon at 4 o'clock, and the fog was coming down off of Twin Peaks, and there was an old coffee uh, roasting place right at the foot of the Bay Bridge. So as you came into the city, you could smell the the fog and the coffee and the sea air and probably marijuana. And I'd never seen anything like that city. I I grew up in the suburbs of Phoenix, a boring city built during the Eisenhower administration. And nothing prepared me for the density of it, the architecture of it, the drama of the views, the bay, the ocean, the hills, the Victorian buildings all up against each other, the glitter in the sidewalks. It was the most extraordinary thing, and I decided before I'd even finished crossing the bridge and landing in the city, I knew that I was going to be a San Franciscan. (laughs) Another thing that was so wonderful about that time for gay people is that it was all brand new. So I was one of thousands of gay kids that were pouring into the city, even before Harvey got elected. Um, In those days, when you were young, If you had any kind of dreams at all, you had to leave whatever your hometown was, unless you were from Manhattan or L.A. or San Francisco. And people chose which city they went to based on their interests. So if you were into serious theater or finance, you went to New York. If you were into pop culture, pop music, or if you wanted to dye your hair blonde, you went to L.A. The radicals and the the poets and the revolutionaries went to San Francisco. So I, of course, went to San Francisco. And... Every day, uh, more queer kids were arriving, and there was this kind of wonderful self-consciousness. You know, we knew that this had never happened before. You didn't have to be smart. You didn't have to be educated. You didn't have to be political to get that this thing hadn't happened before. So 
It was lovely. And if you were walking down the street in the middle of the financial district at noon and, and you saw another gay person and you recognized them as gay for whatever reason, you'd make eye contact and you'd smile and you'd say hello. <laughs> and you knew you had this in common, that you had both come here to this beautiful city from someplace else to be free and to be gay. So it was an incredibly exciting, romantic, kind of innocent time. And it's amazing how much has changed since then. Just, uh, I have to keep wrapping my brain around the reality of what 40 years really means. Uh, I wanted to write a letter to Harvey uh, just about everything that had changed in our neighborhood. And I just thought this would, this would end up being a book. Cleve Jones was portrayed by actor Emile Hirsch in Milk, director Gus Van Zandt's 2008 biopic of Harvey Milk. Hey, I like the way those pants fit. Where are you from, kid? Um, sorry, old man, not interested. Oh, where's home? Phoenix. Phoenix, come here. Just come here a minute. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm running for supervisor. What's your name? Um, Cleve. Jones. Steve Jones. Adorable. <laughs> we should we should get you over here and get you registered, Mr. Jones. Flexions of any kind are bourgeois affectation. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you do? Trick up on Polk Street? If I need the cash. But I'm a little bit more selective about my clients than you are. Okay, let me ask you one thing before you go back to work. <laughs> what was it like to be a little queer in Phoenix? Did all the jocks beat you up in gym class? So how'd you really meet Harvey Milk? Well, the film, it doesn't really have the story right, but I was political before I even got to San Francisco. In the, in the film, it sort of makes it seem like Harvey was the one who turned me on to politics. I was always, my parents were political. They were anti-war activists. And um, I became aware of Harvey, I think, right away, because San Francisco is a city of very small, defined neighborhoods, and each neighborhood has its character. And Harvey, within months, I think, of arriving from New York, had established himself as uh, the principal character of the Eureka Valley neighborhood, as it was called then. And so I was aware of him. I didn't take him very seriously. He, at that point, still had long hair, had a real sort of hippie look, which appealed to me. But what made me mistrustful was that he was a small business owner. And, you know, to this day, I, I have issues with the merchants of Castro Street. And that kind of put me off. And I knew that he'd been a Republican. He'd been a, a stockbroker. Um, I remember one encounter where it wasn't clear to me if he was trying to recruit me or get me to go home with him. But I did tell him that he was... Too old for me, words that have since come back to haunt me with a vengeance. Uh, but he was very, very kind. And I was in the city for a couple of years, and I saved my money. And then in the spring of 1975, I hitchhiked to Montreal and went to Europe. And I spent most of 75, 76, and 77 hitchhiking around Europe and the Middle East. And I came back a couple of times. Uh, my grandfather passed away to come back for that. And I would encounter Harvey. And I wrote to him while I was traveling of um, just every encounter that I had with the emerging gay culture there. I would relay back. And then in 77, when I got back, 
John Briggs was taking up the Anita Bryant campaign, and we first heard the rumblings about what would become Proposition 6. And I immediately began organizing. I was going to San Francisco State, so I organized students a year and a half before the election. We were beginning to organize, and Harvey and I got closer during that time. And he was very kind to me. One of the scenes in the film that I love the most is almost a verbatim recreation of a conversation we had after I got dumped by a boyfriend that I was completely smitten with. And Harvey sat me down and gave me this little lecture about how I was going to have many lovers. <laughs> that was true. <laughs> well, guess what, Cleve Jones? What? You are going to meet the most extraordinary men, the sexiest, funniest, brightest men. You're going to meet so many of them, fall in love with so many of them, you won't know till the end of your life which ones were your greatest lovers and which were your greatest friends. Is that supposed to help? What was Harvey like? You said kind. What else? I think it's really important for people to understand that Harvey, in most respects, was an ordinary person. If you've seen the film, you've seen a pretty good depiction of him. I think Sean's portrayal is spot on. And all of the other old farts that were around there showed up for the filming. And we were constantly amazed at just how real it was. He could be, uh, he had a temper. His personal life was often in disarray. He was a terrible businessman. He was completely broke when he died. And in his life, he experienced, you know, a great many of the defeats and humiliations that most of us have to endure. So especially now that he's been immortalized by Hollywood, I think it's important for people to understand that he was an ordinary man. What was extraordinary about him was his ability to find common ground with all different kinds of people. And that was, I think, the most important lesson that I learned from him. I had already come out. I had already decided that I would be out always in every aspect of my life. But I hated straight people. Uh, I was very heterophobic. I did not want anything to do with straight people. If you had given me bricks and mortar, I would have built a wall around my neighborhood to keep straight people out because I was frightened of them. And being with Harvey, this gay Jew from New York, who in a matter of months won the heart of an entire city by being himself and by finding common ground. That was incredibly instructive to me. So to be with him, going to the bus stops in every different neighborhood, going to the senior citizens programs, going to the union halls, going to the neighborhood meetings, and to just watch him as he fearlessly approached everyone with that big grin and his hand extended and his whole story just spilling out of him. Uh, it, it was amazing. I, it, it took away a lot of my fear. And when you lose the fear, of course, you very quickly lose the hatred as well. So That's something we often overlook about Harvey Milk. He was not just a gay activist. He was a social activist as well. Yeah, and I think that's important for people to remember right now. I mean, one of my problems with my own community and my own people right now is I feel that many of us have completely have forgotten uh, where we're from, what we stood for. I think some of us have forgotten, some of us have deliberately abandoned it. But 
uh, Harvey was, a, was part of the movement, the larger movement, the broader movement, the permanent movement for peace and for social justice. And uh, he was always trying to cross those boundaries. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, and my friend, Cleve Jones, about his friend, Harvey Milk. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. It was a rough road, but in the words of Dolly Parton, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. This is Abby Deese. We're talking with Lynn Sagerblom about the origins of the rainbow flag. Who created the rainbow flag? There were three of us and a bunch of volunteers. <laughs> Every day, some volunteers would show up to the top floor gallery and say, we're here to help. And some days it'd be the same few people, and sometimes there'd be new people. But there were three of us, one of us that did the dyeing, that was myself, and three of us that did the sewing. I only sewed at the end when we were pressed for time and all the dyeing was done because it was 1,000 yards of white cotton muslin that we hand-dyed the rainbow colors in. So I was so busy with those buckets of dye and water, and I needed helpers helping me do that. And then Gilbert Baker and James McNamara were down in the third floor gallery with the sewing machines. Putting and, it all together. Mm-hmm. And I brought my sewing machine in. Other people were using that one, cutting, pinning, ironing, everything after it's dyed, washed, in the washer and dried, and it has to be ironed. A 60-foot-long flag. So 1978, you're in San Francisco. What was the impetus to create a flag at all? I was renting space at the Gay Community Center. I was already there making my tie-dyes and clothing and fabrics that I worked with designers on, and I had a little studio space there that I rented. So I think Lee came to me and said, do I want to be on the decorating committee? And I said, sure. Everything was much more casual in those days. Nothing was fancy. It was all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid to work in the office or... Where we're actually a community? Yeah. Yeah. 330 Grove Street in San Francisco. Yeah, it was a good place. My sense, though, was that just the little bit that I was reading about that time, there was an awareness that the eyes of the world might actually be on San Francisco and what we called the gay community at the time. And so did the flag sort of come out of that awareness? You know, this is what I was... Uh, this morning I was writing to one of the people involved in this whole project. I wanted to ask him, what was the exact date of the assassination of Moscone and Milk? What was the exact date? I don't, I don't know. We can look it up. You know, I think it was after this parade. Really? So Harvey Milk died, you're right, 1978. He was at the parade and he loved the flags. Mm-hmm. Okay? He used to come in, in and out of the Gay Community Center, and that's where he gave his hope speech. Mm-hmm. But uh, to be honest, yes, I, I met him, but it wasn't like uh, anything because we were always running around like trying to get the work done. So we were busy. Everybody was. There was a lot of organizing to try and put this parade on.
The flags came first. Yeah, and I have this sense of the flag being something very joyful and very positive. That was the whole point. Yeah. Joyful, positive. We wanted it to be beautiful. And Why a rainbow? Because that was my last name, and that was like I dyed a lot of clothing, costumes, and fabric with rainbows on them, and I love rainbows back then. And I thought, well, because at the meeting we were like, what should they be? And Gilbert was like, oh, let's do bunting on City Hall, which is just draped fabric yeah. of one color. Old-fashioned parade yeah. decoration, yeah. And then somehow I came up with the idea of, what about rainbow flags? Wouldn't that be nice? And I had some sketches. But Gilbert was not there at that meeting where we decided that it's going to be rainbow flags. I and know the original was. flag was eight colors. Yes. And it had pink. I When I was yes. looking at them, I thought, oh, my gosh, we lost pink. And we lost purple, too. We lost purple, which is so funny because those are so associated with our community. And the other one is I put two different kinds of blue on mm-hmm. purpose. I put the aqua blue and the royal blue. Why? Because I just love those colors. And to me, they're two different colors. And doing all the dyeing, I was just like, well, we have to have those. It goes pink, red, orange, yellow, green, a nice strong green, aqua blue, and then royal blue, and then violet. Did the colors originally have particular meaning, or was it just that they looked nice? Or they were, no, no, there was no particular meaning. Mm-hmm. And then there's a weird thing that some people had never noticed about the two big flags of that day on 1978. One has pink at the top and violet at the bottom, and the other one has pink at the bottom and violet at the top. Is that just because it was hung upside down? No, I did that on purpose. Really? Why? Because I wanted them to be different. Oh. You know, this is on purpose. It's my thing. Yeah. And there were two more differences that nobody seems to... It was the other difference that one of them was based on the American flag? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was considered my flag because I did the star blocking with wood blocks and dyes. I love American flags. I don't know. It's so funny because I actually bought a rainbow flag right after the Women's March. I thought, I need a flag for marching with because you do. And I bought a rainbow American flag. So where the stripes are the rainbow. And I thought, oh, well, this is somebody's fun play on this. And it was so wonderful to realize, no, actually, this was... An original flag. It was for real. And you did that. Yes. Thank you. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions. If you're in the middle of a storm in your life waiting for the rainbow, Remember that anything magnificent often requires a battle, struggle, and patience. So we've been told that some choose to believe it. Well, I know they're wrong. Wait and see. Next week, IMRU presents Pride Out Loud, Episode 3, The Plague Years. <laughs>